0: Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic psychiatrist, and today I'll be talking about candida, or yeast, and its impact on brain health. I'll be discussing the symptoms of candida in the gastrointestinal tract when there's overgrowth. I'll be discussing both brain and physical symptoms. I'll be discussing how we diagnose and treat candida, and underlying factors that would contribute to candida and make it difficult for someone to move past what we call yeast overgrowth. So let me start with describing what candida actually is. It is the most common fungi in our microbiome. Now our microbiome is the trillions of microbes that live primarily in our gastrointestinal tract, but also other parts of our body as well. And candida, again, is the most common fungi. There's also bacteria and viruses. It's normally present in the mouth, the throat, the gut, the vagina, and skin. And candida albicans, which is what I'll be focusing on, is the only type of candida that's able to grow as a unicellular yeast. So think of a round shape. It can switch, however, to a hyphal form, which is more of a stick-like structure. And this particular form is more problematic. It can poke holes in the gut lining. It can penetrate tissues. And if someone is especially immunocompromised, um, it could even lead to systemic infections. So we would Describe this type as being more virulent. So, Candida is a good example of a microbe that is considered commensal. Again, it's normally present in the body. Candida, due to a number of factors which I'll describe, can overgrow and even colonize where it's sort of taking hold on the surfaces of so. How does candida impact the brain? It does so in a number of ways. First, if you just consider if there's overgrowth, this will trigger an immune response in the body. And when there is systemic inflammation in the body, meaning there's an immune response to something that shouldn't be there or there's too much of something, then that immune response will trigger um, an immune response in the brain, which is what we call neuro inflammation. Candida also makes toxins and again, toxins will increase inflammation. But tox- I, last podcast I talked about undermethylation and there is evidence that Candida makes a toxin that will worsen methylation and thus contribute to undermethylation. Now undermethylation has a lot of impacts on brain health. So again, if it's being fueled by Candida, Uh, All of those issues that I discussed in the previous podcast could be amplified. Leaky gut, as I mentioned, from the way the hyphal form can poke holes in the gastrointestinal lining. Holes in the gastrointestinal lining could result in food particles getting through, toxins getting through. But if the immune system is then reacting, for example, to a food food particle that could trigger an autoimmune response. And where that autoimmune response is in the body could depend on our genetic vulnerabilities. Someone, it could be joints, someone else, it could be parts of the central nervous system. Other Others, it could be skin. The physical symptoms of candida overlap significantly with many other areas that I've talked about and will talk about. But a a hallmark can be dramatic carb craving and a narrowing of one's appetite to where the only foods that are satisfying are sweets or high-carbohydrate foods. This will impact even how foods taste. And we see that when people are able to uh, curb those cravings and treat candida, that they're their appetite, their range of foods that they have taste for broadens again. It can cause constipation, but it can also cause diarrhea or fluctuations between constipation and diarrhea. It can contribute to weight gain, though not everyone that has candida has weight gain. There's a number of skin issues we'll see from acne, rosacea, which is uh, the hallmark would be redness of. Uh, specific parts of the face, eczema, psoriasis, dry, itchy, red skin. So we might see athlete's foot. We might see toenail fungus. We might see yeast infections or rectal itching, dandruff, itchy ears. We may see sinus infections, allergies, or even asthma. Now, the, there's a couple ways those fungal infections on the body. I mentioned the immune response could be ramped up, but it also can be the case that toxins from yeast and, and mold, uh, which overlaps quite a bit, can impair the body's ability to fight fungal infections. Um, so as far as brain-related symptoms, we'll see brain fog, fatigue, mood swings, depression anxiety, insomnia. In children, we can see similarly um, mood swings, brain fog, anxiety. Uh, We might also see a drunken laughter, which is a hallmark. And we, again, can see the severe, severe carb craving that we will see in adults. With children, it can be even more dramatic. So how do we become colonized? or develop overgrowth, basically anything that negatively impacts the microbiome, anything that would decrease the bacterial diversity, could potentially make room for candida to overgrow. So starting at birth, there is evidence of C-section births, negatively impacting the microbiome. Similarly, with not being um, breastfed, children can be more vulnerable to what we call dysbiosis or imbalances in the microbiome, and this is because a lot of the gut flora is acquired through through breastfeeding from the flora from the mother's skin. Uh, antibiotics are especially notorious for creating yeast overgrowth in the gastrointestinal tract and not necessarily just vaginal yeast infections, which they're more commonly associated with. Nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory medications, things like ibuprofen, could also contribute and impair the microbiome, as could steroids, which tend to weaken the person's immune system over time. A diet that's high in sugar will obviously cause a high blood sugar, which can cause a switch from the yeast form in the round form to the hyphal form. Increased carbs in diet or a highly a diet that's high in carbs as well as alcohol can also contribute to yeast overgrowth. People with alcohol dependence have been found to have more candida overgrowth. Now, stress is a big issue And it interestingly will raise our blood sugar. And this is by way of cortisol levels. So increased stress results in the adrenal glands making more cortisol, which can result in a higher blood sugar. And the higher cortisol levels can also, over time, decrease our immune response. So stress has a couple ways with which it can increase yeast. Yeast also thrives on a high estrogen state. And so pregnancy or estrogen dominance, which is something that we talk about when there's a lot of pseudoestrogens in our environment that, that basically are almost mimicking estrogen and put someone in a more estrogen-dominant state. Um, Birth control could also increase estrogen, as could hormone replacement. Mold toxicity is something I see very commonly in my practice, and it will make someone more susceptible to candida or yeast overgrowth by way of impairing the immune system. So it used to be that we would think a lot more about candida, and we would talk a lot more about candida. And then when we were finding that some people couldn't tolerate the treatment, we started to realize that the reason that they couldn't was that they actually had mold toxicity. They had high levels of toxins that were impairing their ability to move past yeast, um, but also, again, to tolerate the treatment, which I'll talk about. And also I should address how acidity can also contribute to yeast. So a diet that's high in carbs and a diet that's high in meat, meat and carbs will both create an acidity in the body, whereas a lot of vegetables are more on the alkaline end of the spectrum, and they can counter that. So high stress, by the way it affects our autonomic nervous system, can contribute to acidity, but so can, again, a diet high not just in Carbs, but in in meat, without the balance of alkaline vegetables. So, in terms of diagnosis, uh, there are stool tests that can be done, and uh, there's also organic acid tests which look for metabolites of yeast in the urine. There are blood tests where we can look for antibodies, but that doesn't necessarily tell us if someone has had an old or a recent. Sort of immune response to candida symptoms again are uh, overlap quite a bit with a number of other other areas. If I do test someone with for mold toxicity and they have gliotoxin, there is evidence to suggest that's made by yeast so it's, it's almost assumed by those of us who treat mold toxicity that candida or yeast is part of the overall picture of colonization. Treatment, diet is, dietary changes are essential, though diet alone is usually not effective when there's a significant issue. Um, a low-carb paleo-type diet can be ideal, Um, Basically, proteins and a low-carbohydrate diet that does not involve sweets. I mean, you'll see a lot of different diets and a lot of different approaches dietarily, but across the board, sweets are problematic. Where you'll see differences is in how much carbs are allowed. There's some, some diets where the recommendations are quite strict, and then other diets where... There is an understanding of the need to have some prebiotic-type foods that uh, could help the overall microbiome crowd out some of the candida. Antifungal treatments are treatments basically to kill off the yeast, but not to completely remove it. There are many natural herbal treatments. There are also medications, both that just hit yeast on the surface of the gastrointestinal tract, and that uh, an example, and the most common, is nystatin, a systemic one that goes through the bloodstream. An example would be diflucan. Probiotics are very important in sort of reseeding the microbiome, and there's a lot of debate, too, on whether it needs to be soil-based, spore-forming, how high the numbers, sarcomyces as a yeast probiotic. I don't think in any of these things that I'm talking about that there is a right answer. You'll have different approaches that work for different clinicians. If binders are necessary because sometimes in yeast dying off, those toxins are being released and someone could have significant what we call die-off, I would typically use bentonite clay. Uh, However, if someone is having significant die-off, I would highly suspect they probably have mold toxicity and other toxins present that will need to be identified and addressed even before treating yeast. Biofilms are protective coverings and films that the microbes will make that make them more resistant to antifungal treatment, and so we will use uh, interventions to break down biofilms, and that can be specific targeted enzymes that can help do that. We also aim to support the immune system and not just be killing off microbes, and again, supporting the microbiome and helping it flourish. Lowering stress is important, and I would also emphasize that lowering uh, EMF or electromagnetic frequencies in one in one's environment is important, and I'll explain a little bit more of, about that shortly. Complications or even contraindications of treatment, as I mentioned, could be mold toxicity. If that ha- if someone is toxic with mold toxins, again, that may need to be identified and they may need to be started on binders before they can tolerate yeast treatment. Someone who doesn't detoxify particularly well may need detoxification support. Someone who has significant mast cell activation or an exaggerated immune response may need some uh, support there before they can tolerate treatment. Another complication can be if someone hasn't made dietary changes, and so they're still eating a high-carbohydrate diet, then they may not tolerate, they probably won't tolerate the antifungals particularly well, because it's a, it can be a feeding and a killing process going on simultaneously, which becomes basically a toxic storm, you know, killing off microbes that, are, that have toxins, and at the same time they're being fed and multiplying. So it's important to get the dietary piece going. And I will tell you, one of the biggest challenges, and this is something I'll talk about more in my live call uh, tomorrow, is that the carb craving that is created by Candida is quite severe and can be the biggest obstacle to someone moving forward, not just in their treatment of yeast, but also in mold. And it can really keep people stuck. And I do see a lot of people who, if they can make it to 48 hours, then the carb craving can start to start to settle down. But I'll, it creates a cycle of shame for people in terms of intending to lower carbs, then almost binging on carbs, feeling bad about themselves the next day, trying again. It's it's very much like um, we would see with alcoholism and any other addictive pattern. But in this specific case, and perhaps partly with alcoholism as well, these microbes are communicating with the brain to be fed. And so if we kind of know sort of what we're up against i think it can take away the shame and it can also make it easier for some people to sort of sort of take this on and again not to kill yeast but to bring their body back back into balance so also on the the live call which we record so those who are members and listen to the live call they always can access them if they can't be at the live call But there are debates on, does someone have to have a positive test before treatment? So I'll be talking about that, the duration of treatment. The debates about more about diet. Are ketogenic diets actually problematic for those with yeast? Are carnivore diets problematic? So lastly, I just would like to comment on uh, connecting the dots. Again, the stress response is very important and people can have a high stress response from having had trauma or a genetic vulnerability to a high stress response and so they may be vulnerable Uh, and again high stress means high cortisol means high blood sugar and an increased vulnerability to yeast emf also causes or emf being electromagnetic frequencies also cause high cortisol which, again, can cause high blood sugar, increased yeast, and a decrease in immune response. That doesn't mean everyone exposed to EMF or everyone who's had trauma or a high-stress response is going to have this, but it certainly can can be a factor for some individuals. So who could this information be helpful for? I think anyone that has severe carbohydrate craving and who wants to address it. It's not a given that uh, some individuals with severe carbohydrate craving would want to address it. And there are other factors that can cause carbohydrate craving, but I would say there's nothing that does so in such a dramatic fashion as candida. This could also be useful for someone who has had a new onset of brain-related symptoms, or, again, dramatic carb craving after having been on antibiotics. Uh, And it could also be helpful for someone who is chronically addressing yeast. Um, It may be that they have mold, or it may be that um, with all they're doing to starve the yeast, perhaps they're not feeding their microbiome well. So I hope this was helpful, and I hope that it, somehow expands your thinking about brain-related symptoms and the root causes of brain-related symptoms. And I hope it helps you recognize that our goal is not to dominate and destroy these microbes that live within us, but to strike a healthy balance and allow them to do what they do to regulate our immune system without us contributing to them overgrowing and causing inflammation and disease. If you want to learn more about this topic, I'll be discussing it in greater detail on my live call, which can be found on my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com. And until the next podcast, I'll look forward to connecting with you then. Take care. Bye-bye.